Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezekiel 48. I've entitled the morning's message, Grace and Rewards. Uh, this morning we conclude our section of the major prophets. Isaiah has 66 books, Jeremiah has 52, Ezekiel has 48, and we call them the major prophets, but only because they have so many chapters. We'll be entering into the minor prophets. They are called minor prophets simply because they're shorter books. That's as simple as that is. So let's go to our seven verses here, and um, the study will unfold. And one of the things I'm hoping that we're, we're seeing and learning as we go through the entire scriptures, the necessity and the importance of teaching the whole counsel of God. Because as we're going to see shortly, if we don't have these divisions and these names, we're going to single out one tribe this morning, the tribe of Dan. Unless we we actually study chapter by chapter and book by book, Revelation 7 isn't going to make any, um, the meaning will be lost unless we understand what we're about to read this morning. So here we are, verse 1, chapter 48. Now these are the names of the tribes. From the northern border along the road to Hethlon, at the entrance of Hamath, to Hazer uh, Ian, and the border of Damascus, northward in the direction of Hamath, there shall be one portion for Dan, from the east to the west side, and by the border of Dan from the east side to the west, one portion for Asher. Um, This section that we're in, in Ezekiel, Of course, the overall view of Ezekiel is him and Jeremiah had one message. Um, Their sin was so great that they were going to be taken into captivity. That's the main theme of the book. But then we have chapters like 36 and 37. 36 talks about Israel eventually coming back. We've actually seen that fulfilled in in our lifetime. And um, then from chapters 40 to 48... And this morning, uh, last week, we um, finished um, Ezekiel. But all of these chapters, 40 to 48, deal with one subject, and it is all about the kingdom age, all about the millennium, into extremely (laughs) uh, great detail. And now we simply are closing it up with the um, land that's going to be given to the 12 tribes of Israel. And it starts out with Dan, and that's significant. You you don't see the significance of Dan being first here, but you will before the end of our message. Here is where the 12 tribes of Israel, matter of fact, I'll put it up on screen. Um, We went through the, the boundaries and the borders last week. So the first one up here is actually a picture of um, the allotments. So we actually, when we, when we read this verse by verse, it, it showed uh, one side would be the Mediterranean Sea, and the exact dimensions in great detail are all are just laid out for us. But for the next thousand years, the 12 tribes of Israel, this will be their home. And um, we learn that who gets what, if you're from the tribe of Dan, they say they're going to cast lots for it. 
So somebody can't say, well, this is really got, this is really got quite the vista. I want that one. No, you're going to get, it's sort of like the Holy Spirit. You might want a certain gift, but as we were talking about in men's prayer yesterday, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that decides what gift you get. And um, we're told to desire the spiritual gifts, but he's the one that actually gives them out. So they cast lots, and that will determine what portion, if you're from the tribe of Dan, what piece of property you're going to have for the next thousand years. Now, it should be mentioned that this is just dealing with Israel. The Lord says that um, we are going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years on the earth. And uh, so there are many nations. The world will be uh, inhabited. And so, but this is just dealing with Jews and where they're going to live. Our home is not here. Um, Our home is going to be the New Jerusalem. And that is Revelation 21 and 22. We'll be getting into uh, Daniel and uh, Revelation uh, after the, the holidays, Good Friday and Easter is coming up, and we'll dive in right after that. Uh, but this morning, uh, what I'd like to do is just look at one of these tribes, and that is the tribe of Dan, and that's what we have in our first couple verses here. Uh, but I, I want to take a look at his history, so to do that, I want you to turn back to the book of Genesis, Uh, chapter 49, and here, look at verse 1, we we hear that Jacob called his sons and said, and he gathered together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in, notice, the last days. And um, this is important, because we actually have prophecies that are going to be fulfilled as he prophesies over each one of his children um, I'll just look at two of, of the 12. Uh, Judah begins with, with verse 8. And of course, we read that Jesus came from uh, the line of the tribe of Judah. That was the tribe that he came out of. If you look at verse 10, um, this is a prophecy that would be fulfilled in Jesus' time. So even though Jacob is blessing his 12 kids, in the blessing, there's a prophecy. And in verse 10, it says, a scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, the scepter was a symbol of authority. You might remember the book of Esther, and she was afraid to go in, and uh, if the king didn't hold out his scepter, which was a sign of authority, uh, then she could have been killed. Um, So the idea of a scepter here is that they have the right to rule Themselves, The scepter will not depart from Judah. In other words, they handled the law. Um, If a man was guilty of murder, the death penalty would have been stoning. And that's the capital punishment in Judaism. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. In other words, they're going to have this authority until Shiloh comes. This is a reference to Jesus. The first... Um, one of the first prophecies in the Bible about Jesus Christ is right here in this verse, until Shiloh comes. Remember when they wanted to kill Jesus, they did not have the authority to do so. 
And it wasn't by stoning that Jesus died. It was Roman crucifixion. So the power that ruled was Pilate. And he was a, he was a governor of the land. He had the authority. So here's a prophecy in the line of Judah. Until the Messiah comes, you're going to have the, this authority. But when he comes, uh, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And I'll just leave it at that because it's sort of a side sidetrack. Let's go down to Dan. And as he's prophesying over Dan in verse 16, it says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backwards, for I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Um, As we look at this blessing, it can be confusing, but obviously there's a leadership role that's involved with Dan. Often Dan and Ephraim are mixed together. They would have been a part, eventually, of the ten northern tribes. The next place I want to look at Dan is in the book of Judges, chapter 18. So if you'll make your way over there, I'm going to read part of it, and because it's a lengthy chapter, but we need to have a a good understanding about the nature and character of Dan. So the setting here, I'll I'll read the first seven verses so you just get a feel of the, the time frame During the time of Judges, of course, during the time of Judges, there were Judges. There weren't kings. Uh, The time of the Judges was roughly, I think, 360 years. Now, verse 1 of chapter 18, In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the Danites were seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day their whole inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not yet fallen to them. So, the children of Dan sent five men of their family from the territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtal, to spy out the land and search it. And they said to them, go search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim. So Ephraim and Dan often are are mixed together to a a house of, of Micah, and they lodged there. Now, while they were in the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned around and said to him, uh, who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? And and, uh, what do you have here? And he said to them, well, thus and so Micah did for me, and he hired me, and I became his priest. So they said to him, well, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go is going to be prosperous. And the priest said to them, well, go in peace, and may the presence of the Lord be with you on your way. So the five men departed and went to Laish. They saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. There were no rules in the land who might put them to shame for anything. Uh, They were far from the Sidonians, and they had no ties for anyone. So let me just walk you through the rest of the chapter. Let's go down to verse 14. Basically what happens is they go back and report. Hey, say, we found this city. It's great. And um, it'd be a great place to live. The problem is we've got to get rid of the people that are currently there. So in verse 14, the five men had gone to spy out the country of Laish, answered um, 
and said, Do you not know that in these houses is an ephod? And they have idols, they have carved images and molded images. Now, therefore, consider what should we do? And they turned aside there, and they came to the house of a young Levite man, that, uh, that is, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. But they had 600 men with him. So now that they spied out the land, now they come back with 600 men. They go into the house, and they take, it says in verse 18, they, they, they took the priest. says, why don't you come and work for us? You're just working for one guy. How would you like to be over a whole tribe? He says, deal. And they took the um, images, the ephod, the, uh, the molded images, and um, Micah follows about as they're taking all of his belongings and his priests and says, um, hey, what are you guys doing? And um, Dwight's paraphrase here down in verse 23, it says, what ails you? You have gathered such a company. Basically, they turn around and says, look, if you want to live, go home. If you want to die, keep following us. So <laughs> wanting to live, the guy simply turns around, realizes he's lost everything. And these guys are now on their way to, um, to uh, Laish. If you go down to um, oh, verse 28, there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. Uh, they and they had no ties with anyone. It was a valley that belongs to Beth Rehab, so they rebuilt the city. They go into Laish. They kill the people, and they burn it, and then they rebuild it. And um, just a side note here, every time we go to Israel, we go to Laish. Um, There's a game reserve there, and we go hiking, and it's called Dan, and um, I always pull the guide aside, and I go like this, shh, don't you say a word about the end of our trip. Because this was one of the places where Jeroboam, when there was a division and a split with Israel, first it was Saul, then it was David, then it was Solomon, and then you had the split of the ten northern tribes, and, uh, and then two in the south. Well, Jeroboam, um, with Dan and Ephraim, sometimes it doesn't say the ten northern tribes. Sometimes it just says Dan, or it just says Ephraim. This is the place that they actually set up a golden calf. The other one was in Bethel. And they've recently discovered it within the last 50 years, the very spot. So I'll give a Bible study, and the people that are sitting on the steps don't realize that right behind me uh, I sort of spring it on him at the end. I said, when we go to Israel, we say this is an A site, a B site, or a C site. Now, an A site would be um, the synagogue at Capernaum. It's built on exactly the same foundation that Jesus would have been in. It was torn down, but it's still on the same foundation. So you can give a Bible study and say, this is exactly where Jesus walked into the synagogue at Capernaum, and that was his base. A B-site would be, oh, let's see, a good B-site would be um, the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was taken up into heaven, okay? They actually have a great big column, and they say, this is where Jesus left. And I say, that's a B-site. 
Yes, he left from the Mount of Olives. That's true. But this isn't the spot. Somewhere around here. Or the Garden of Gethsemane. Are you in the Garden of Gethsemane? Yes, on the Mount of Olives. Where? Well, somewhere on the Mount of Olives. B-site. A C-site would be the upper room where the Holy Spirit fell. And say that they like to take tourists to, to this place. Well, I don't go there. Why? Because it's a seaside. Jerusalem has been rebuilt and destroyed over 20 times. There's no way <laughs> under the sun that that's where the Holy Spirit fell. But it's great for the tourists. So what we have here is when we get to Dan, we give this Bible study about Jeroboam setting up a golden calf, and they worshipped it. So as I'm speaking to the people, the steps that they're sitting on actually lead to where the golden calf was and where they put burnt offerings is behind me. But I don't spring it on them until we're at the very, very end. And believe me, it makes the Bible come alive like you wouldn't believe because all of a sudden you're in an A spot. This, is an a, this, ha, this happened right here. Um, verse 19, Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved images. Now this would be at Dan. And, and, and again, it's a beautiful nature walk. The city of Laish, now Dan, is um, a, a reserve that we go hiking for about an hour through this beautiful reserve. And Jonathan, the son of Gershon, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan. What? Tribe of Manasseh priests? Here they have no regard for the word of God because only a Levite can be a priest. But now they're setting up the sons of Manasseh, the sons of the tribe of Dan. Notice that until, and this is important, until the day of the captivity of the land, so they set up for themselves Micah's um, carved image, which he made at the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. What I want to point out here, until the time of their captivity, and um, we see that after Israel was divided, we have these ten tribes, and this is where they set up the golden calf eventually. And um, when it says the time that they were taken into captivity, this is when, in the year 710 B.C., the Assyrians came in and took the ten tribes of Israel. Some of the Jews were allowed to stay. Some of the Assyrians married the Jews, and they became what we call Samaritans. That's where a Samaritan comes from. But from this also came the false doctrine of the ten lost tribes. Question at this point. How many of you here, just raise your hand, have heard, at least heard, about the ten lost tribes of Israel? Go ahead, raise your hand. Almost everybody. Well, here's the deal with the ten lost tribes of Israel. They're not lost. Okay? They're not lost. So, where did this all come from? It's called British Israelism, And um, it's the belief that the ten lost tribes of Israel migrated to Europe and then to England and became the primary ancestors of the British people and thereby the United States and British uh, Israelism was made popular by the Worldwide Church of God 
Herbert Armstrong. This was one of his teachings about the ten tribes of Israel. Um, but other groups also hold to the doctrine of well. Uh, this is basically Reformed theology. This is where the ten tribes went to. Well, I could go on for the next hour and tell, tell you just how ridiculous the whole thing is. That these ten tribes all moved to England? No, I would have, I would have moved a little bit farther up the coast and stayed on the Mediterranean, maybe settled, settled in in Greece or Athens somewhere, but not, not England. And um, that journey from Assyria to England, first of all, they would have had to have permission to go. And there's all these reasons that this just is, isn't the case. The primary goal behind British Israelism is to claim that England um, inherited the, the covenant promises God made to Israel. While England and the United States have been blessed by God in many ways, it is not because God's promise to Israel has been transferred to these two nations. God's covenant with Israel always involved the land of Israel. Abraham's descendants would inherit the land. The blessings of God to Israel were always in connection with a specific land that he promised, and these promises, therefore, cannot apply to England or the United States as these two nations do not possess the promised land. It's where we get replacement theology from. And the whole structure in England is based in their... with the king and queen on the idea that they're part of the lost ten tribes. Well, I said they're not lost. Where are they? Revelation chapter 7. So let's turn there. And why it's important to study all of the Bible. We'll be in Revelation 7, and we'll take our time going through it. But I'm just going to read um, 1 through 8 here. And... What we're having is the beginning of this great judgment of God. We read in verse 17 for the great day of his wrath, of chapter 6, the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. But we read in verse 1 of chapter 7, now after these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of, of the earth, that they should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the, the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels who, was, who were granted to do harm to the earth and to the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 140 4,000, notice, of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. It doesn't talk about Christians being sealed. These are those that are supernaturally sealed who become Jewish witnesses during this period of time. And uh, they're going to be protected, and none of the judgments um, are going to affect them. Let's read them. There's going to be 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Naphtali, 12,000 from Manasseh, 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Issachar, uh, 12,000 from Zebulun, 12,000 from Joseph, 12,000 from um, 
Benjamin. All right, guys, put on the screen, please. And uh, what is odd about what I just read? What's odd is that um, Dan isn't mentioned. And the question, therefore, has to be asked, why isn't Dan mentioned? And we have Manasseh put in there and said, see that Dan is in Genesis and Numbers, but he's not in Revelation. And we have um, Manasseh put in, but he's not mentioned in Genesis. And we have um, Joseph not mentioned in Numbers. So we still have 12 tribes, but the question at this point is, why isn't Dan used and sealed during this period of time? And the answer to that question is, is it because like Jezebel, Dan and Ephraim, it says, remember the, the, the prophecy, he will be a judge over his people? The tribe of Dan and Ephraim were the ones who eventually introduced idolatry into the 10 northern tribes. They didn't have one good king. They had 20, I think. And the same thing is said of every one of the kings. They did evil in the sight of the Lord after the sins of their father Jeroboam, every single one of them. And so they were caught up in idolatry just as Jezebel um, married Ahab. Well, she introduced Baal worship. So you have these 10 northern tribes that God is so patient with for so long. But eventually, he said, enough. You've, you've disgraced my holy name. You're worse than the countries that were there before. And you're coming down. And, and he's holding accountable the leadership. The leadership here would have been the tribe of Dan. Now, just like uh, our text, and this is where I want to begin to connect some dots, um, our text as we finish Ezekiel chapter 48 verses 1 and 2, we read the tribe of Dan is present in the millennium, although he is absent from those sealed in the great tribulation period. The Danites do not serve in the great tribulation, but the grace of God brings them into the millennium. So the reason it's significant that he's number one on the list when, when we go to chapter 48 is a picture of God's amazing grace. He was the worst of the group, but he's first in line to get the reward. Why? Because of God's grace that is extended. We can make the application for us also. We too are saved by grace. But we also are going to receive rewards. Now I'll get to that part in just a little bit. Now just as God judged Dan, and Dan goes through the tribulation, um, they're not protected. He's one of the 12 tribes. Now I want you to turn back to chapter 2. And we have... Now you can put up the seven churches, guys. Now we have seven churches representing church history. We have 12 tribes, and what do they represent? Well, all of Israel. When we get to the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, we have seven churches. And the seven churches represent 
all of Christianity um, that call themselves Christian, but it does it in a chronological order. Now, I hope you can see this because um, one of the unique things that I want to point out is um, the time frame of these churches. The church of Ephesus would have been the first one. And as we follow it chronologically through church history, uh, they, they were the ones that left their first love. But they were holding fast to doctrinal issues that were the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It was bad teaching, and they, and they stood against it. And that lasted till about from 30 to 100 AD, and that's the numbers that we have up there. Smyrna, if you lived for the first 300 years as a Christian, this was known as the suffering church. That's where we read about the martyrs. And, and for the first 300 years, um, you, you have the, the Roman emperors, you have the catacombs in Rome, and the millions of believers. It was a persecuted church, and that lasted from about 100 to 312 A.D., this would have been a time of history where Constantine supposedly got saved, an emperor. We don't know if it was true. Was it a political play on his part? We don't know. He said he saw a cross and that to go to war and be victorious at this time. And that would be from like 312 to 606. Now, beginning with Thyatira, there's something different from the first three from the last four. The last four have this saying attached to them. And um, let me just, uh, I think I have it in my notes here so I can actually uh, read it. Um, chapter 2, verse 25 tells us, um, but hold fast what you have till I come. Till I come. In other words, this church of Thyatira is going to be birthed about in the 600s but it's going to exist all the way to the tribulation. And the same is true with the church of Sardis. It'll be a church that exists until the tribulation. Then you have the church of Philadelphia that will exist until the rapture. And then you have the church of Laodicea, the last day church, where the Lord says to them, I'd rather have you hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. But the point that I want you to see that Christianity, as we look at it today, is broad. I mean, of all the people who call themselves Christian. As you look at um, Thyatira, um, here is a church that began um, with Roman Catholicism. And I believe that the church here is a representative of that. The church at Thyatira is a representative of Romanism, which takes us into the Dark Ages. And um, it was a very, very dark period of time. Now, as you look at the church of Thyatira, um, when we get into this, we'll get into it in a lot of detail. Seven letters, seven churches, um, seven promises given to each of the church. Um, only two of them are not rebuked by the Lord. That would be the suffering church, Smyrna, 
and the evangelical born-again church called Philadelphia. Nothing bad is said about them. But the other five, strong words. Matter of fact, Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, either or. Either you repent or I remove you. I remove you. That's, those are strong words. Now, when it gets to the church of Thyatira, I want to spend a little time on this, and you'll see how hopefully this is all going to blend together. As I look at Roman Catholicism being represented in church history, not only then, but even as it exists today, we find that, first of all, he actually commends them in verses 18 and 19. So there's condemnation, but to the let's look at verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like flames of fire and his feet are like fine brass. He says, I know your works. Uh, love, service, faith, you're patient. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. If you go back through church history, one thing that can be said about Roman Catholicism, they, um, there's over a billion of them today. They are known for starting schools and hospitals. You think of Mother Teresa, who didn't believe in Jesus, believe it or not, but her name is idolized, especially in India. And so as far as the works, what is the, there's six things mentioned here but they are revolved around the idea of, of works and their love for the poor. And um, I just had a special this week on, uh, I was watching it, uh, about uh, St. Francis of Assisi. And um, um, he tried to correct and tried to actually live the gospel. But he was really swimming against the grain because of um, what had entered into Roman Catholicism. Before I get to the condemnation, let's, let's give credit where credit is due. They did many good works around the world with hospitals and uh, feeding the poor and, and caring for them. And they're known for that. And the Lord acknowledges it. And then he says, nevertheless. All right, now you got my attention again. Nevertheless what? Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel all of a sudden, we just made a connection with the Old Testament and with the tribe of Dan and, and Ephraim and King Ahab, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, let's, I'm not going to take it for granted who, who, that everybody understands who Jezebel is here. Uh, she's a Sidonian. Um, she married Ahab. Um, Jezebel had brought paganism into the northern kingdom of Israel. This would have been Dan and Ephraim. Just as Dan brought idolatry with, um, um, with Ephraim, so Jezebel has brought paganism to the northern kingdom of Israel. And eventually... There was in a local church at Thyatira a woman who had a reputation as a teacher and a prophetess who was the counterpart of Jezebel that was married to Ahab. And concerning this historical period of the Dark Ages, which the church of Thyatira represents, I'm quoting McGee right now, pagan practice and idolatry 
were mingled, so we have a blending, with Christian works and worship. The papacy, or the pope, was elevated to a place of secular power under Gregory I and later by Gregory VII. The introduction of the rituals and church doctrine surplanted a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Worship of the virgin and child and the mass were made a definite part of the church service. Purgatory became a a positive doctrine, and mass was even said for the dead. The doctrines um, that came uh, from Constantine were um, circulated to give power and the final word where it was now infallible if you were a pope. You could, your word could supplant even the word of God. So what is referred to, Jesus says, this is spiritual fornication. But it's really playing with the word of God, adding to it and, and changing it. And that's why the Lord says he was against him. As Jezebel killed Naboth and per- persecuted God's prophets, so the Roman church instituted the Inquisition during this period. Seduce means a fundamental departure from the truth. Jezebel stands in sharp contrast to Lydia. Remember Lydia, who came from Thyatira? Uh, Jezebel is merely a forerunner of the apostate church that we see in Revelation chapter 17. The works of Christ are in contrast to the works of Jezebel. The works of Christ are wrought through the Holy Spirit. We overcome by faith and not by our efforts. So what is the Lord saying to this church? You've polluted it. You've changed something in a way that I never set it up to be. And you're allowing things that are not biblical um, from infant baptism to last rites, none of which are in the Bible but which one billion people worldwide are hanging, hanging their hat. And now the consequences. I'm going somewhere with this. He says to them in verse 21, he says, I gave you time to repent of these things, of your sexual immorality, but yet you did not repent. Indeed, I will cast you into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now, if you look at the chart again here, it shows that, and this chart I agree with, is a chart that shows where the church of Thyatira is going to end up. It's going to end up in the great tribulation, unless they repent and get back to biblical Christianity. Unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the hearts and the minds, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, notice here the individuality, and he's not lumping everybody together. And it's true in Roman Catholicism today. Many of you here probably were a part of that particular denomination. I was brought up a Protestant, but I didn't know the Lord as a Protestant. But here, he, he talks about those, but to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many who do not have this doctrine. Well, what does that mean? It means there were those people living in that Roman Catholic culture that said, I'm not buying that. I don't believe that. 
And so they're, they're not going to be held accountable, and they're Christians, and the Lord is calling them such here. They don't have this doctrine. Gang, doctrine is everything. Um, it's the cornerstone of the church is doctrine. It determines um, what we believe, how we believe it. And, um, and then he goes on to say, I know the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put on you no other burdens. He's acknowledging that there are those who live in Thyatira that aren't going along with, with this teaching of Jezebel. But hold fast what you have until I come. So until Jesus returns at the rapture, he says, hang in there. Keep your singled out. And um, we find this, this connection there with him. All right, let's see if we can connect this with Dan. Just as Dan will go into the tribulation because of idolatry, so Thyatira will go into the tribulation. Roman Catholicism is salvation by works, no guarantee of salvation, prayers for the dead in purgatory, uh, is spiritual fornication, and it's not grace. Now, when we talk about works, which is necessary in the doctrine of Roman Catholicism, and they have them, look at verse 19, the Lord commends them. But then he says, nevertheless, it's not going to save you. So there will be a lot of people who say, yeah, but Lord, we did this, 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 and this for you. And he'll say, yeah, but I never knew you. Now, as we consider grace versus works, this is really, believe it or not, a Bible study on grace this morning. That's why your bulletin covers has grace on it. Grace versus works. That's what I want the main thing to be placed in your hearts and your mind this morning. Grace versus works. Romans 4, Paul says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. In Romans eleven six, this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. If it's by grace that we're saved, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it's of works and no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. 2 Timothy 1, 9 who has saved us and called us with a holy calling according to our works, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Jesus Christ before time began. When Jesus said, it is finished, you know what that means? It is finished to tell us that. And so if all my sins, past, present, and future, we're taken care of at the cross. You know, you, a- you ask the question, why, why the continual mass for your sins? I thought they were all taken care of when Jesus died. They, they can't answer that. In his commentary on Revelation, uh, Frank Boyd quotes this, so I'm quoting him. He's an old Assembly of God guy. He says, remember that Thyatira, or Romanism, Sardis, Protestantism, Philadelphia, the true evangelical church, and Laodicea, the last day apostate church, exist side by side in the end of this present age. Everybody catch that? 
In other words, all four of these people that call themselves churches will exist in the present age when the coming of the Lord is imminent. You're going to have Roman Catholicism. You're going to have dead Protestantism. Let's look at chapter 3 in Philadelphia and what he says to this church. um, Let's go to verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things says he who is holy, who is true. He has the keys of David. He can open and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it. Even though you have little strength, I would add to that maybe even little numbers, but you've kept my word. See, this is what made them different. They kept the word. They didn't add to it. They didn't take away from it. And you have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. Now, verse 10. Because... You have kept my commandments to preserve. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. Stop. Think about what I just read. Now, everybody goes through trials. Do we want to give you an amen? Anybody here not go through a trial? We all go through trials, but this is talking about a trial that affects the whole world. It can only mean one thing. And that is a great tribulation. So what is he saying to the church of Philadelphia? He says, because you've kept my word, yes, you're little in strength, maybe you don't have a lot of numbers, but you're faithful to what I've called you to do. And you haven't compromised what you said, Jesus is the only way. You've kept and not denied my way, that that's the only way you can be saved. And then he says this, that I'm gonna keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth Behold, I come quickly, hold fast what you have, that no one might take your crown. And so now we're talking rewards. So to the church of Philadelphia, he says, I'm going to, and that's correct on the, on the map up here, it exists up until the time of the tribulation, but then they're raptured out. And that is those who are truly born again and it's all really about God's grace. As we finish up the book of Ezekiel, we see a beautiful picture of God's grace. We look at the tribe of Dan. They were the worst of the worst. Um, they were responsible for God finally bringing judgment. And yet, we see this beautiful picture of grace that when it comes to the millennium, they're number one on the list. Who, who gets the first portion of land? Dan. The one least deserving is the one that's in first place. And I call that grace. Good place for an amen. We don't deserve it, but what does he do? He not only gives us grace, but he also gives us this reward. So it is with us. We deserve judgment. But because of grace, we're not only saved. I titled this this morning, Grace and Rewards. Not only are we saved by grace, he's done all the work, but yet he's going to reward us. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians 3 teaches. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn to it. 
It says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But be careful how you build on that foundation for no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold and silver, precious stones. Now, this would be interpreted, in my opinion, as those who do things with a right motive in service for the Lord. Yes, you're saved. And it does say in James, the proof of your salvation is you will have good works. It's not the works that save you, but because you're saved, you do good things. Another good place for an amen. All right, well, the Lord's watching. And he's keeping track to the point where he says, be careful how you do your good deeds, that men don't see them. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Why? Because your heavenly Father sees. And he will reward you openly. Well, really, when and where? Well, right here in 1 Corinthians 3, at the judgment seat of Christ. He's done the work. He allows us to do little things. He says, be faithful in little, and I'll put you over much. And then he says, then there's the wood, hay, and straw. Some people build on wood, hay, and straw. What is that? A good example of of doing a work with wood, hay, and straw would be... um, um, getting Channel 2 to come and take a picture of you giving a $10,000 check to Haiti with your name and you're in the front page of the picture, okay? Wood, hay, and stubble. The Lord says, you've already got your reward. You wanted a reward? You got it, but you don't get it later. So it's, it's the motive of the heart. Paul said, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. So we're, we're to be to be wise on how we do that. And then, the only one, this is, this is one of the places where Matthew 7, 7 actually applies, where it says, judge not so you won't be judged. Now, I don't know what you do with your time, your money, and um, it's none of my business, quite frankly. But what we read here is that there's coming a day, and the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work what sort it is. I don't know your motive and that's why I'm told not to judge. Well, he did it just because he wants attention. I don't know that. Maybe his his personality is, is such a way but he might be doing things that nobody else knows about except the Lord and he will be rewarded accordingly. If anyone's work, which he had built on verse 14, endures, he will receive a reward. I wonder what it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to be. I know for sure I'm going to like it a lot. (laughs) At his right hand are pleasures and treasures forevermore. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm sure looking forward to finding out. If anyone's work is burned, in other words, he did it with the wrong motive, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet as though through, through fire. There will be Christians in heaven that have no rewards. But you know what? Um, they're still going to be full of joy. I made it. <laughs> I'm in heaven. Praise the Lord. And, you know, some people's cup is going to be bigger than others. Just because they've invested and given and the Lord 
is going to come and he's going to determine um, who gets what. Grace, it's all him that's done the work. But he, you're still going to receive the reward in the same way that an undeserving tribe called Dan is rotten to the core as you can get. Didn't think twice about murdering people, taking over cities and getting um, others than Levites to be their priests. Had no fear of the Lord whatsoever. They did it all wrong. They're first in line in the millennium and, and, and God's grace. Close this morning. This is Pastor Chuck's book. It's called Why Grace Changes Everything. And if you've never read it, here's one of the classics of all time. I'm just going to read how the book ends. Your one duty. God has given you but one simple responsibility, to believe in his promise. You can enjoy the blessings of a relationship with God, even though you may not pray enough or give enough or sacrifice enough because of your faith in what God has already done for you. God made Jesus to be sin for you that you might be made the righteousness of God through him. Jesus imparts to you his righteousness when you simply place your faith and trust in the work that he has done for you. His work is all of grace. Paul's open his letter to the Galatians with the salutation, grace be to you. And he closed it with, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, amen. His benediction takes a rich depth of meaning in light of the letter's sharp focus on the glorious grace of God. The grace of Jesus, not the law of Moses. Were the Galatians, uh, that was the Galatians' greatest need. To walk in the power of his spirit and not in the vain efforts of the flesh was their calling. How did the Galatians respond? We're not told. Perhaps this is because the question raised in Galatia is always an open one. Will you rely on your own righteousness or will you trust in God's gracious provision, one or the other? Will you remain in a simple message of salvation by grace through faith or will you add to your own list of righteous works, to the finished work of Christ? Will you walk in the flesh or in the spirit? Will you glory in the cross of Christ alone? Or will you seek the approval and rewards of this world so that you may glory in your flesh? These are issues that every believer in every generation eventually must wrestle with. The answer you stand for will spell the difference between peace and fear, pride and true humility, even spiritual life and death. May you stand without wavering for the grace of Jesus Christ. May you not be moved by the deceptive desire to please men. May you be so heavenly minded that you are of the greatest earthly good, holding out the word of life in an an increasingly dark and hopeless world. And may you glory this day in what Jesus has done for you and in that alone, amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we've just finished the book of Ezekiel and we really wouldn't have a grasp of Revelation chapter seven and why Dan's excluded. But yet when we step back and take a big look at 
the verses that we read, first on the list to receive the reward is Dan, the least worthy. Lord, your goodness is overwhelming, and uh, we thank you so much that we're out of the equation and that we are saved by the finished work of the cross. We dare not try to add anything to that, but offer to you the fruit of our lips, the sacrifice of praise, and just be grateful and thankful. And Lord, use us to share those that are, are bound up in the things of this world and show them, Father, that there's a, a whole lot more that you have for them. Thank you as we finished this portion of your word. We pray that you go before us the rest of this day and week. In Jesus' name, amen.